Is that better there? Okay. Praise the Lord. Now, where is Eric Myers? If things go weird this morning in this sermon, it's because we didn't hear Eric Myers yell victory. I was waiting for it the whole time. And then we got the Fletcher sitting over here. Okay, this is a bizarre. Listen, let's turn to John 17. We'll continue our worship this morning. This wonderful, wonderful letter, John 17, that we've been considering for three weeks now. We're going to uh, finish our time in John 17 by looking at one verse. And really even half of one verse, if we're being honest. But John 17, verse 24. So if you'd please stand with me for the reading of God's word. This is God's word. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day, this opportunity to come together to be instructed by your holy word to hear once again this prayer from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're so, so thankful. We pray that you'd speak to our hearts through this text, that you would conform our hearts into the image of your Son through this text, and most of all, that you'd be glorified in this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, as I said, for the past few weeks, we've looked at the 17th chapter And over these past few weeks, I've asked you all to consider the reality of your own mortality, to think about your own imminent death and departure from this earth. A strange request this day and age? Perhaps. But it was for a purpose and for two reasons in particular. Number one, thinking about death has a wonderful way of recalibrating our priorities in life. As our gaze is shifted from the temporal to the eternal, again, as has been said, considering our inevitable death has a wonderful way of getting our focus upon God when we realize that we can meet him at any second. Number two, second reason I asked you to consider the reality of your own mortality, and that is so, as Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica when talking with them about death. I might be able to comfort you with these words. My goal this morning is to comfort all true believers with this text, with this 24th verse of the 17th chapter of the gospel according to John. I want to comfort the man or woman of Christ, the set-apart ones, the chosen, uh, those who are chosen by the Father from before the foundation of the world. I want you to find comfort and peace and rest in the thought of your departure from this earth. Not fear, dread, and panic over the thought of your departure from this earth. I want the coming reality of our final separation from this world to be a soothing thought, not a frightening thought, not something we shrink back from, but rather something we look forward to. You know, from the moment I read John 17 in our family devotions earlier this summer and then asked the elders if we could do a mini-series on this prayer, I've had this particular verse in mind to comfort all of you who truly believe. Again, my aim for this morning, for our time this morning, is to comfort you with these words of Christ, to comfort you with the words of Christ on the night he was betrayed, to direct your gaze again to the words of the 17th chapter. And my prayer, Christian, is that the Lord would etch these words onto your hearts as you leave this place today, that your hearts would be full of the steadfast hope and everlasting comfort which are jam-packed into the words of this 24th verse. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, Be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now, for our time together this morning, we'll touch on this verse in its entirety 
of, of course, but we'll primarily focus on the first half. And specifically, Jesus' request for the chosen people of God to be with him where he is. That those whom you have given me will be with me where I am. With me where I am. If you look at your outline this morning, you'll notice that we're going to be starting with these words and working our way back to Jesus addressing his Father. We'll spend the vast majority of time on the first two points. Then, Lord willing, we'll touch on the rest as we bring our time to a close. First of all, I want to direct your attention to the words of our Lord, where I am. Point one. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am. Where is the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, it depends on when we're talking about, I suppose. For example, when he prayed this prayer, he was in front of the 11 disciples, maybe in the upper room, maybe heading downstairs, perhaps on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane, about ready to cross the Brook Kidron, as John will tell us in the opening words of the next chapter. But either way, at this moment, he is praying this prayer. He is literally standing in front of the 11. He's literally standing upon this earth that he spoke into existence, praying these words audibly, in front of these 11 men for them to hear. God in human flesh, truly God, truly man, standing before them. But why would he pray that those who were given him by the Father would be with him where he is if they are already with him where he is? Well, the answer is he wouldn't, and he didn't. Much like his saying, the hour has come in verse 1, speaking of the hour of his sacrifice for sinners on the cross at Calvary, uh, speaking of the hour of his death, his subsequent burial, his triumphant resurrection, his glorious ascension, much like his saying, I have finished the work that you gave me to do in verse 4, while in time and space the crucifixion wouldn't be accomplished for another 24 hours, the resurrection another three days after that, and the ascension another 40 after that, much like Jesus saying the hour has come and the work is finished while he still stood before these 11 men in the flesh, his reference to these believers being with him where he is speaks of a time to come, but one in which God's eyes was already as good as done, okay? In this 24th verse, he's referencing where he will soon be physically, but where he is already according to God's perfect plan of redemption, a plan which was decreed from before the foundations of the earth, decreed by the one who not only knows the end from the beginning, not the beginning from the end, but the end from the beginning. In fact, he has declared the end from the beginning, right? Isaiah 46.10, it's already done. He's already there. He's already where he prays to be, in one sense. And these, these whom he speaks about, these 11 to be sure, but in fact all who would believe in him through their words, these are already there as well. In the sense that they were in the heart of the Father, chosen by the Father, reconciled to the Father, in the sense that they had their names written down in the Lamb's book of life by the Father. This book which existed from before the foundations of the world, their names were already there. Our names were already there, predestined to be where he is. Of course, we're talking about heaven, paradise, glory, a place referenced in many passages throughout Scripture, but only really described in a few, and actually, typically in a way that leaves the reader yearning for more information. But you see, that's the problem. Our minds, our our finite minds, which have always been limited to, constrained to, and, and participants in a corrupted and cursed environment, can't truly fathom the wonders of heaven. We can't comprehend it. So there's not a ton of detail concerning it. For example, uh, later in this message, Lord willing, I'll read a, a little section from Revelation 21 where we have one of the few descriptors of the eternal heaven the new heaven, which will hold the new earth, which holds the new Jerusalem. But even then, John is speaking in language through inspiration of the Holy Spirit in a way that we are only able to somewhat comprehend. But in the process, he can't accurately describe things that he or his readers aren't familiar with. That would be an impossible task. How's he supposed to explain the unexplainable? 
So when you read it, you can see him straining to articulate what he's seeing to us, uh, what he's seeing to us in terms that we can understand, saying, "Well, the city was like precious stones. The wall, it was like pure glass. The street was gold, but it was like transparent glass. And the radiance of God was illuminating it. And he elaborates on it, but he does, he, he's so in awe that even under divine inspiration, he's not able to describe it completely and, and accurately because we wouldn't even know how to comprehend it if he could. We, we wouldn't even know how to comprehend such magnificence. And, and the Lord knows it. Such words to describe such magnificent perfection aren't found in our human vernacular, especially not our corrupted human vernacular. We can't conceive of such a perfect environment. We can't even comprehend it. So John does his best to tell you what this new city is like. And that's what God told John to tell us. So it should be sufficient. But eternal heaven and eternal glory aside, we will get to that in a bit and perhaps do another study of that sometime. Uh, But for right now, I want to know what's going to happen the moment I die. I'm not going to go to the new Jerusalem if I die right now. That's to come. And a whole lot happens between now and the destruction of this world. I want to know what's going to happen now. Should I die before I wake? I need to be comforted this morning regarding the imminent nature of my certain death. If I die right now as a true born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, whether by some accident or illness or tragedy or murder, or if I'm, as Paul says, caught up in the air to meet with the Lord in the rapture, either way, I need to know. And frankly, I'm not concerned with unbelievers right now because neither was Christ in this prayer. I want to know, as a Christian, where will I be? Where will I be? Answer, where Christ is. Where is Christ? With the Father. Verse 11, I am no longer in the world, yet they themselves are in the world. I come to you. As you sent me into the world, I also sent them into the world. But now, verse 13, I come to you. Jesus both comes from the Father and returns to the Father. And in between, he calls and keeps those who belong to the Father. And he gives them the Father's word so that through the word, he might call others to the Father as well. Okay, then, where's the Father? In heaven. Pray then like this. Our Father, who art where? In heaven, that's right. That's where Jesus went. Luke 24, after his triumphant resurrection, Jesus led these same 11 men out as far as Bethany. Lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And it happened that while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Well, of course, that's where, that's where he's been telling him he's going since uh, chapter 14. Luke confirms it in his second volume in Acts 1. After he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking toward heaven? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Heaven. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am. Where he is, is heaven. So what's he doing there? Well, first of all, we know he is triumphantly reigning over all things. He has been given all authority by the Father, all authority in heaven and on the earth. And Specifically over his spiritual kingdom, he's currently ruling and reigning in the hearts of all who belong to him through his spirit who now dwells inside and seals each and every individual member of his body, of his church. He is currently reigning in glory. Therefore, Paul says, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow 
of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, as the resurrected God-man, he is, as we speak, manifesting his glory in heaven as the exalted one, as the Lamb of God, as the King of kings, as the Lord of lords, to the glory of God the Father. Which, interestingly, is what he requests for his disciples and all believers right here in this 24th verse. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you love me before the foundation of the world. So for one thing, he's manifesting his glory. In fact, and probably the clearest descriptor of heaven we have, John talks about what this will actually look like here, but again, in, in limited terms. I mean, even Paul said, I've been to the same third heaven here, the first heaven being our Earth's atmosphere, the second being the planets and galaxies, and the third heaven is where Christ is. He says, I've, I've been to this same third heaven, but I, he says, I can't tell you what it was like. I heard words inexpressible, Paul said. However, uh, Christ gave John a specific vision when he appeared to him on the Isle of Patmos and took him up into heaven, right into the throne room of God. Listen to this, Revelation 4. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first verse, uh, voice which I heard, had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here. I will show you what must take place after these things. Notice, here we go with the likes again. Like the sound of a trumpet. Well, he can't explain what this voice was like in human terms. He's trying. There are no sufficient words to truly describe this glory. Watch. Immediately, I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne and. He who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. And, the throne, and around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon those thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. And out from the throne comes flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And the first was like a lion. The second creature like a calf. The third creature had a face like that of a man. The fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night, they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty who was and is and is to come. When the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, O Lord, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. There you go. Hope that's helpful to you. Uh, that and the rest of Revelation is the best that I or anyone else can do to describe heaven to you. And these are all the details that God wants you to know about what heaven looks like. Which is another way of me saying, stay out of the Christian bookstores <laughs> and save your money. Amen. That's the best I can do. Uh, because I've never been there. And then come back to tell you about it. And neither has anyone else since John. But I'm going there by God's grace. Even though I can't fully comprehend it, hearing about it is a great comfort to my weary soul. How about you? That's right. That sounds like a place I want to be. Beholding the glory of my Lord. Second thing he's doing, he's preparing a place for us. Jesus is actually preparing a place for you and me, for all who are in Christ. That's what he told the 11. 
Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may also be. And you know the way where I am going. And listen to this. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Do you hear that, Muslim? Do you hear that, Jew and Hindu, Roman Catholic, general unbeliever? Well, if you never have, you've heard it now. No one comes to the Father but through the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, he's going to be with the Father in my Father's house. That's heaven, though heaven doesn't contain the Father. The Father is uncontainable. Uh, Jesus says here, in heaven there are many rooms, dwelling places, apartments, if you will. But not like the apartments down here. No slumlords in heaven. No burst pipes, no cockroaches, no loud neighbors, no never-ending flights of stairs ascending many floors, which our friends who need help moving always seem to be at the top of. Nice garden apartment right here. Oh, no. These are heavenly dwellings. Perfect. Curseless. Sinless. Dare I say, spotless dwellings? That sounds nice. Well, if you died right now where you sit, or if you die this week, or should the Lord tarry and not come for his people in the clouds, but you live another 50 years, this is where you'll go, Christian. Into glory, into paradise, into a place where Abraham in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus of Luke 16 called a place of comfort. Comfort, my brothers and sisters. Death is not a fearful thing for the Christian, for the true believer in Christ. Oh, no, 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 no. We need not fear our death. For the moment we perish from this earth, the very instant in the twinkling of an eye or the time that it takes for the light to hit our eyes, we will be in heaven, in glory, in bliss, free from sin and death, free from the curse, free from all that ails us. This will be a blissful place indeed and one that we should all long to go to, one that I believe, even if we had a short exposure to, as Paul did, even if we were only there for mere moments, we would lament the thought of having to return to life back on this earth, right? That's why I can't take these books that people write. They should be books of lament. I can't believe I had to come back. It's like Paul said, man, To die? Gain. It's far better to die. Trust me. To be there is far better. But yet, to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Now, I I think we'd feel the same way. Oh, don't send me back. Please don't send me back there. (laughs) I want to stay. I want to stay here. No need to speculate, though. We know heaven will be sweet. Even the intermediate heaven we will go to, or the immediate heaven we go to the moment we die, the heaven that will one day pass away, by the way, uh, where we will be in spirit form. Only our souls will be there. Our bodies will be in the ground or burned up or in the ocean, whatever, uh, awaiting their resurrection. But... We know that this place that we will be, the real us, our souls, will be sweet. It will be sweet. And not so much because of the environment, though that will be absolutely incredible, but because of the company. You see, what makes heaven heaven is not what it looks like or what we'll be doing there or what will be there. What makes heaven heaven is who will be there. Namely, our Lord. Point two in your outline. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, that they would be with me 
Don't forget what really caused Paul to say to die is gain. Uh, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know what I will choose. I am hard-pressed between the two, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake, because the Lord commissioned me. I got to do it. Finish the race. Finish well. The draw, the allure, the attraction, the enticement to die, not in a suicide cult way, but by natural means, whatever they may be, but the draw is not so much the perfect environment of heaven, the activities of heaven, or the supposed pleasures of heaven. It's not so much even the throne room of heaven and the myriads of angels, the creatures. It's not so much the praises being sung, the glories being offered, or the beauties upon beauties which will mesmerize our everlasting souls. That's not the ultimate draw. And I'm here to tell you, that's not what should comfort your weary soul this morning. Or, or temper your fear of death. Rather, what should comfort your everlasting souls today is that someday soon you will be with Christ. Amen. That's heaven. To be in the company of the perfect Son of God, and He is perfect. He displayed that here on earth. He was always about his infinitely perfect father's business as he never deviated from the left to the right of his father's perfect commands ever in thought, word, or deed as he demonstrated his love and kindness and compassion to sinners. Not tolerance of sin, mind you. He did not tolerate sin, but he spoke and he preached the truth in an uncompromisingly gracious manner as he went about healing the sick, as he went about delivering men, women, and children from demonic possession, caring for those who were lame, maimed, oppressed, and depressed, expre- extending compassion to really the most undeserving among us, all whom he knew thoroughly. Think about this. He knew the hearts And he knew the thoughts of every man, woman, and child when he walked the earth. Yea, he knows the hearts of every person who has ever lived, and yet he still treated them with mercy and grace, just as he does us. He spoke like no one else had ever spoken. He loved like no one else had ever loved. He sacrificed like no one else has ever sacrificed. He died for his enemies. He died for those who hated him, even those who hated his father. He he gave his very life and was separated from his father for the first time in all of eternity that those who believe in him would never again have to be. And as you read the Gospels and you read of his glory manifested even on earth here, as you get to know him through the revelation of himself in his word, the more you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the more you long to be with him. Isn't that right? The more you read of him and you hear of him and begin to realize that he will never leave you, he will never forsake you, the more you understand that he cherishes you like a precious gift, like a token of the Father's love that was given to him. The more you realize the lengths he went through to ransom and keep those who are his to the point where He gave his life for you and and promised that he will be with you until the end of the age. And now, in this 24th verse, promises that you will be with him. Not just till the end of the age, but for ages upon ages. Indeed, for life everlasting and glory. The more you understand that this is a reality for you personally, the more that you personally will be comforted in this life. The more that you personally will long for for the next life. To the point where regardless of your earthly circumstances, you will have a peace that surpasses all understanding. That's godly peace. That's godly peace. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am. There are no more comforting words that I can offer to your everlasting soul this morning than these words of Christ that they would be with me where I am. Many of you know the name of the famous hymnist Fanny Crosby. Just a remarkable life, a remarkable woman. 
I'm often astounded at how the Lord used this woman. She penned over 8,000 hymns and poems, many put into print, maybe many even under pseudonyms where she doesn't even get the credit. But temporal adulation and self-glorification was never Fanny's aim. Oh no, she lived for Christ. Born to a modest Connecticut couple in 1820, she developed an eye infection in infancy. The normal doctor was out of town. Some quack came in. He put some salve on her eyes and blinded this poor, sweet little baby girl. Soon as word got out, this guy fled. He left town, and Fanny and her parents, really her mom, her dad died the same year, uh, were left with a whole new set of uh, challenges in a society that really didn't much care for invalids. But Fanny determined that her blindness wouldn't hold her back from living as normal a childhood as she could. She wanted to go to a normal school, play normal games, experience a normal childhood, though with a clear handicap. Well, she ends up just excelling at everything she does. God gave her an amazing ability to obtain and retain information to the point where not only did she attend normal schooling, but she ended up being a teacher, a composer, an ambassador. She was even invited to speak before a joint meeting of Congress at the age of 26, which she did. As during this time, she was recognized as the foremost poet in America, and she did it all in the name of Christ. Do you want to know something really fascinating about Fanny Crosby? She wasn't even saved till she was 30 years old. From one of her biographies, quote, Fanny grew up believing in God. The Quaker and Puritan people among whom she lived had a devout faith and believed that each person needed to have a personal conversion experience. In the fall of 1850, there was this huge outbreak of cholera. Thousands of people were getting sick, dying all around her. She canceled an important engagement, stayed back, and nursed the sick. In this atmosphere of death and gloom, Fanny became increasingly introspective of her soul's welfare. She began to realize that something was lacking in her spiritual life. She knew that she had gotten wrapped up in social and political and educational reform and did not have a true love for God in her heart. Fanny attended several Methodist revivals and began to earnestly seek God. She had a conversion experience on November 20th, 1850 and said, I realized for the first time that I had been trying to hold the world in one hand and the Lord in the other. In fact, This moment marked the beginning of a deepening Christian experience and the beginning of the total dedication of her life to God, end quote. Now, I'm not advocating for this idea of a conversion experience to confirm your salvation, but it is remarkable how at this point her hymns started taking on a different tone. And many of them, many of the ones we sing even today, came from a true spirit-led, scripture-saturated conviction to, conf- to comfort a people with the reality of not only their new life in Christ, but eternal life with Christ. How she knew one day in the life to come that she would be, in fact, able to see clearly not just with her heart, not just with her mind, not just with her soul, but actually see with her eyes. In the hymn, Blessed Assurance, she wrote, perfect communion, perfect delight. Visions of rapture now burst on my sight. On my sight. In another she wrote, Jesus, my heart's dear refuge, Jesus had died for me. Firm on the rock of ages, ever my trust shall be. Here let me wait with patience, wait till the night is over. Wait till I see the morning break on the golden shore. The golden shore is heaven. Wait till I see. Wait till I see the morning break on that golden shore. Fanny knew about the benefits of heaven, believe me. She longed for the glories of heaven where... All the wrongs would be made right where she would experience the release of all of her burdens, the deliverance from all the effects of the curse. She longed for that morning to break upon that golden shore. She longed to see that shore. But there's something she longed for even more. She said, When my life work is ended and I cross the swelling tide, when the bright and glorious morning I shall see, I shall know my Redeemer when I reach the other side, and his smile will be the first to welcome me. 
<clears throat> she will see the glorious morning, and it will be awesome. But there's something else that she longed for even more, my friends, the smile of her Savior, Christ's smile. A Christless heaven is no heaven at all. In fact, eternity without Christ, no matter how great your body works or how great the surroundings are, an eternity with Christ is nothing more than hell. Christ is our everything. Without him, our lives are nothing. On earth or in heaven, they are futile, they are hollow, they are empty, fruitless, worthless, valueless, joyless, peaceless. They're a waste. Compare that with a <clears throat> illustrate, uh, uh, excuse me, an interview I'll never forget from uh, 60 Minutes, a number of years ago with Tom Brady. Steve Croft was the interviewer. This, this guy had everything, right? Yeah, millions of dollars, multiple Super Bowls, actress and supermodel wives, plural. Uh, <clears throat> fame, a legacy, best QB of all time, maybe. Here's a quote from the interview. Why do I have Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I've reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up, cracked up to be. <laughs> Freudian. I mean, I've done it. What else is there for me? Croft says, well, what's the answer? Tom Brady says, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Now, since that interview, he's won a couple more Super Bowls, but he cheated on his actress wife. His model left him for her jujitsu instructor. His family is torn apart, and let's just say he's not the spring chicken he once was. That's what I mean. <laughs> I mean, ultimately, eternally, a thousand Super Bowl victories mean nothing. Nothing. Ultimately, this life is worthless without Christ. But with Christ, oh, with him we are full. With Christ, our souls enjoy ultimate satisfaction, ultimate contentment. With Christ, and only with Christ, can we then experience the true joys of heavenly existence. Which is why she went on. Oh, the soul-thrilling rapture when I view his blessed face and the luster of his kindly beaming eye how my full heart will praise him for the mercy, love, and grace that prepared for me a mansion in the sky. You see, it's, that mansion is not her focus there. The one who prepared the mansion is her focus. You see that? Oh, the dear ones in glory, how they beckon me to come. And our parting at the river, I recall, to the sweet vales of Eden, they will sing my welcome home. But I long to meet my Savior first of all. She's saying, oh, to be reconciled to loved ones will be sweet indeed, but not as sweet as the moment I see my Savior. That's where I'm headed. Beeline to the Savior. Through the gates to the city in a robe of spotless white, he will lead me where no tears will ever fall. In the glad songs of ages, I shall mingle with delight, but I long to meet my Savior first of all. You see, that's what we long for. Not a place. <laughs> Not a place, but a person. The older I get, the more mature in the faith I get. <clears throat> Even the more wounded I get on this earth, the more pains and betrayals I endure, the slander I endure, uh, the more I long to be, not just in heaven, but with my Lord in heaven. The more corruption I see, the more injustices in the world, the more hatred and debauchery and perversion and depravity, the rampant oppression, abuse, the manipulation I see, the more I long not to just be in heaven, but with my Lord in heaven. The more sufferings I see, all the conflicts and the heartaches, the sadness, the stresses, the depression, the despairs of life that I witness every day, the more I battle with my own remaining sin, the more I long 
not just to be in heaven, though that will be exceedingly wonderful, but the more I witness and experience all of these, these things, the more I long to be with my Lord in heaven. We long to be with the Lord. The, the more we long to be with the Lord Jesus Christ, the more my aching heart longs to meet my Savior, first of all, the more I want to see his face and his smile and fall upon him and embrace him and experience that true rest in his presence. And I share the same blessed assurance as Miss Crosby, knowing that this will indeed be a reality, as I'm one of the ones whom the Father gave to the Son as he draws me to himself. Let me just ask you then, do you have such blessed assurance this morning? Now's the time to know. Now's the time to be sure. Do you have such blessed assurance? I hope that you do. He offers it to you today. Look at the assurance he provides even in these words. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am. We were given to the Son by the Father, meaning we belong to the Father. We were his to give. Not just the 11, but... The, uh, not just these, but in fact, verse 20, all who would believe in Christ through their word. As we've learned over these past few weeks, every man, woman, and child who has ever believed, including you, if you believe, and me, and your friends, and your family, your children, and your loved ones who have already gone to be with him where he is and would be terrified at the thought of having to come back to this earth to be with us, it's a fact, belong to the Father. Just like you belong to the Father. You belong to him before the world began. And so there is nothing in this world that can ever pluck you out of his hand. You are his. Jesus even says as much as an exclamation point on this verse. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you have loved me before the foundation of the world. That's what seals the deal. Don't you see this here? We learned it last week, right? Verse 23. The same love that the Father has for the Son, he has for those who belong to him. And when did the Father love the Son? From before the foundation of the world. Just as he loved us, he loved us and chose us in Christ from before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1. And because of this, my brothers and sisters, nothing can ever separate you from his love. And therefore, eternal glory in his presence is as good as done. It's done. That's why Paul says, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We've been given to Christ. We can never be separated from Christ. Not now, not for all of eternity. Are you comforted by these words today? Oh, I hope you are. For this is his desire. And you know, I read commentary after commentary. They all said the same thing. This word translated desire here, fellow, is actually better understood as will. Father, I will that those whom you have given me will be with me where I am. In other words, this isn't some hope that he has. It's not some dream. It's not a wish. It's not a long shot or even a longing. It's a decree. Just as he willed for us to have new life in him, so he wills for us to have eternal life with him. I will, I would that they would be with me. And as God, I will see this through. This translation, translation desire here leaves much to be, well, you know the rest. <laughs> now, as we close our time in John 17, we find ourselves back where we began, where Christ began, Father. Everything revolves around the Father. A lot of folks in our day, in our day and age, thinks and, and act as if the world revolves around him, around themselves. That's false. Everything in all of creation whether in heaven or on earth or even below the earth, all things come from and ultimately exist for the Father. Why, even Christ himself, even the Son of God, who existed co-eternally with the Father, who was always in submission to the Father's will. He, he always sought the glorification of his Father. 
He always sought to obey the will of his Father. And though we don't have time to get to it this morning, we can't forget this important truth, that though our salvation was accomplished by the Son, and though we are saved to eternal life with the Son, praise the Lord, our salvation ultimately came from the Father, from the God of Israel. We are blessed through Israel. We're saved by a Jewish Messiah who was a direct fulfillment of covenant promises made to Adam and Moses and Abraham and David to, to the chosen people of God of Yahweh. As Isaiah said, you, O Yahweh, are our Father. Our Redeemer from everlasting is your name. As the psalmist said, you are my Father, my God, the rock of my salvation. Peter says, blessed be be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and unfading, having been kept where? In heaven for you. In heaven. It's kept. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Jesus was constantly talking about the Father's decrees, and the Father's kingdom, and the Father's glory, and the Father's will. Jesus himself was constantly talking about the people whom the Father would draw to himself. And who is that? Those who would do the will of the Father. Okay? That's right. In fact, he told the 11, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven... He is my brother and sister and mother. All that the Father gives me will come to me. The one who comes to me I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Okay, then, what is the will of your Father in heaven? We, We have to know. The eternal destination of our everlasting souls depends completely on the Father and the Father's will. So what is it? Well, by God's grace, he tells us. He tells us. You can hear it at this very moment. Now this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. That's his will for Christ. How about for us? For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. So again, I ask you, are you in the will of the Father? Have you abided in the Father's will by coming to him through faith in the Son, by believing in his gospel? Have you responded to his call, through the power of his word, and by the strength of his spirit? Are you longing for that day when you get to experience his full fellowship and full communion in heaven? Because of what he did for you through the sending of his son to die for your sin? Are are you one of those? Are, Are you one of those whom the father is drawing to himself? Maybe even right now? Do you belong to the father? Have you come to the father through Jesus the son? If so, everlasting glory awaits you. In fact, eternal glory awaits you. One day you will see him face to face. You know what he says that will be like? He says, there will be a new heaven, a new earth. The first heaven, the first earth pass away. There's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them. They shall be his people. God himself will be among them. Listen now. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. First things passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. 
And he said, write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, they are done. See that? They're done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Do you belong to the Father this morning? Are you one of his sons? Are you one of his precious daughters as you sit in that seat this morning? Are you one of those who will behold his glory for all of eternity? Are you one of those who will be in his presence the very moment you die? Are you one of those who will run into the arms of your blessed Savior and spend all of eternity praising his holy name for what's been done for you by God's grace alone and for God's glory alone? I pray that you are. I really do. I pray that you would come back to the 17th chapter often. I pray that you would always look at them as a balm to your weary soul, even in your dying hours. I pray that you would especially take comfort in these words of our Lord at the conclusion of his intercession for us. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am so that they may see my glory with which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray now as Tim and the music team comes up to lead us and close us in musical worship. Heavenly Father, what a joy it is to even call you Father. You have, by your grace, ransomed people and caused us to be born again and adopted us as your sons and daughters. We are so unworthy of this. We're so unworthy of the forgiveness of our sins. We're so unworthy of new life in Christ, and we're definitely unworthy of eternal life with Christ, but we rejoice this morning together as your people, as your body, this congregation, to say we're so thankful that through Christ that that is a coming reality for us, and in fact is already done. We're so thankful that by your grace you wrote our names in the Lamb's Book of Life. We're thankful for Your amazing grace, your steadfast love, your abounding mercy, and most of all, we're thankful for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We long for that day to see you face to face. We long for that day when we will be in your presence where we will sing the praises of your holy name for all of eternity. You are worthy of our praise. We love you, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name, amen.